This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Please to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, this is where we have been uh, last week and where we are today. In fact, Ephesians is where we have been for weeks. I think this is maybe the 12th or 11th or 12th uh, message. We, we've been going through, journeying through the book of Ephesians, and now we're at the, uh, the last phase, uh, which speaks of spiritual warfare. We talked about uh, the Christian's wealth, the Christian's walk, now the Christian's warfare. And so we begin reading from verse 10. And this is where we were in our, at our last message. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Let's just stop there. Now, I'm not going to even go back into what we shared in our last message on this, uh, if you want to find that out, then you can order uh, the CD uh, for that. But this morning we are returning again uh, to the business of the whole armor of God about spiritual warfare. Uh, William Gurnall, that old Puritan preacher of long ago, uh, he addressed this subject and he called it the Christian Incomplete Armor. And it's a very apt title and description, the Christian Incomplete Armor. That's what the believer should be blessed in, dressed in, I'll get it right yet, when he is in a spiritual battle. So let's look again at this vital subject and see what we can learn from these scriptures. In verse 13, and for the second time, it's also in verse 11, he speaks of the whole armor of God. Any soldier in any battlefield uh, realizes the absolute vital importance of the correct dress and the right weaponry. Any theater of war where soldiers are, they need to be dressed appropriately for the battle. They need to be in their battle fatigues. In 11, 10, 11 years ago, whenever the British soldiers along with allies were fighting in the Iraq, the Iraq war, uh, if it wasn't so serious, it would have been laughable. And the reason was because their very boots, the soles of their boots were melting in the heat. And the Ministry of Defense, you would think, would have half a brain, never thought 
that when you take soldiers from temperate climates to put them into hot, boiling climates, that the boots they wear would withstand that. And they weren't. They were actually melting in the desert sands. And it was so bad <laughs> that soldiers were writing to their wives and to their, their girlfriends and their loved ones and please, please send me proper boots. These things are melting. And not only that, they were actually short of, of flak jackets. Uh, and they were going to the American soldiers and borrowing or buying their flak jackets. Some had to go out on patrol without a flak jacket. So they were ill-prepared at the start for that battle. You know, if you take soldiers who maybe have been serving in Northern Ireland with the cold and the wind and the rain and suddenly ship them out there with the same battle dress out into 50 degrees heat, uh, not only were their boots melting, but their very clothes, they were sweltered because they had the, the wrong fatigues. And so that caused a major problem. There was, there was questions raised in Parliament about that because it was an absolute disgrace. But eventually, uh, they got over that. And so when fighting in a spiritual battle, you must have the proper dress. Whenever Hitler, for whatever reason, came into his mind, uh, whenever he decided to go against Russia during the war, he picked the wrong time to do it. He picked the winter time not realizing that the German soldiers were not properly dressed and equipped for the real Baltic Siberian winters uh, to the point where they were dying of exposure and effectively lost them the war because they just couldn't cope. Their very tanks were freezing up. The very diesel in them was freezing. They were just not equipped for that theater of war. And so when we're fighting a spiritual battle, then we must have the proper spiritual attire. And the Apostle Paul lists them for us here. And all of them are absolutely vitally important. If you're going to overcome the enemy of your soul in a spiritual battle, you can't fight with your spiritual pajamas on. You need the proper gear to do this. And so as long as we're in this world, as long as we're on this earth, we will be facing some spiritual battles. Uh, last week, and the only thing I'll mention about last week was that we, we added a bit of balance into this. Uh, because once you start talking about this subject, there are people who get so obsessed with spiritual warfare. And, and all they can think about is devils and demons. And uh, every door creaks as a devil. You know what I mean? It, get, it just gets ridiculous. Uh, and everything that goes wrong, well, it's, it's the devil. Well, don't feel you're that important, really. Uh, you know, lots of what goes wrong is our flesh. It, it's us sometimes that's just going wrong. It's us that makes the mistakes of the wrong decisions and the wrong choices are battling our flesh or not dealing with our flesh. And most of our problems, that's where it emanates from. And so we have to take that into account. But having said all of that, there are going to be occasions when it will be a reality, it will be a true spiritual battle, it will be the enemy, the evil one, who will be coming against you. And so it says, withstand in the evil day. And withstand here means vigorously oppose, bravely resist, standing face to face against your adversary. We mentioned before that some fights are going to be up close and personal in your face, particularly when it comes to your family 
or your finances or your frame that happened to Job in the Old Testament. And so sometimes it's very personal. And so we have to vigorously oppose it. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. In Ephesians 4.27, Paul gives this advice. Give no place to the devil. And the word place there is topos, T-O-P-O-S, and that's where we get topography from. If you look out over hills and vales and valleys and mountains, as you look over that landscape, that's the topography of the land. That's the ground. And so he said, give no ground, give no place, not an inch to the evil one. That's what he's saying. Make sure you do not give him a toehold, a foothold, or a place of occupancy. Do not do that as much as lies within you. In 1982, the Argentinian army in strength invaded the Falkland Islands. The Falkland Islands is a, a British dependent territory and British subjects there. And it's just off the coast of the south of Argentina. Argentine. And so they come in and they there's only a couple of thousand people uh, in the Falklands. And so they, they quickly overran them and they requisitioned schools and buildings or whatever to use as headquarters. And, uh, and so they were invaded. And they were, uh, effectively, they were captives in their own country. So Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister at that time, the Iron Lady. And within three days, she decided we are going to take that back, even though it is thousands of miles away. And even it's going to take weeks to get there, the ships, but we're going to do this. And so that's what happened. And so they set out to recapture uh, the Falklands. The Argentinians call it the Maldivas. Uh, they believe it's their islands, not Britain's, and so forth. Be that as it may, anyway, uh, they went out to do this, to capture, recapture this. And one of the amazing things was, uh, you know, the, 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 their headquarters was in Port Stanley, which was the city. That's where the Argentinians were holed up. But uh, a platoon of paratroopers and marines, they went to the opposite side of the island and they made a beachhead. And from that beachhead, then they had to tramp with full packs on and all their armaments, they had to tramp miles and miles and miles over rough terrain right to Port Stanley and they took the Argentinians by surprise because they did not expect them to come over that way. And so they came over, got in there and took them by surprise. Long story short, Britain regained uh, the Falkland Islands again, even though there was many killed in that on both sides, but they eventually, in about 11 weeks, they regained that. But it was that tramping over that ground, that making that beachhead on the other side of the island, tramping over, and re that's what stood out in all of the Falklands War. That's what everybody was talking about. And these soldiers were tired, they were weary, it was rough terrain, it was difficult to do, but they had to make a beachhead first, and they did it in a place where the Argentinians weren't there. It's important, a beachhead. 
And the enemy knows that if he can get a beachhead, a toehold, a place of occupancy in our lives, then he can do damage. And that's what he tries to do. Having done all to stand, verse 13. Winston Churchill says, be like an iron peg driven into frozen ground. In other words, be immovable. Don't budge. Don't give an inch. There's a slogan in Northern Ireland we're all familiar with, whether you agree or not, no surrender. <laughs> and I'm not saying which side you're on. <laughs> Having done all to stand, be immovable. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Sometimes all it takes for you to win through is to stand firm. Easier said than done, I know. But sometimes all you've got to do is to stand and just not quit and just not give up or give in. And even though the battle's raging, and even though it's hot and heavy, and even though the enemy has got the big guns trained on you, and even though you may stand there feeling vulnerable and exposed and all alone, that God's with you. God's with you. And when you stand, and you stand, and you stand, and at the end of it all, when the dust settles, you're still standing. Having done all, stand. Colossians 1.23, Paul says we are to be grounded and steadfast in the faith, not moving away from the gospel. And Paul's not speaking in a vacuum here. Because I, I know that struggles and difficulties and battles, it's all academic until it happens to you, isn't it? We can all talk about it, sing about it, preach about it, but when it's happening to you personally, it's a different story, isn't it? It is. But the Apostle Paul, who was no stranger at all to battles and struggles, and everywhere Paul went, everywhere, every town, every village he set foot in, there was always somebody stirred up against him. He was in jail. He was stoned. I mean, he was run out of town. I mean, there's one time there's a whole group of people conspired together, vowed to kill him. So he knows what he's talking about. But you know what he said? None of these things move me. I'm not going to be shifted away from my calling. I have a job to do in the kingdom, and no devil of hell is going to stop me from doing this. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself. Even if it kills me, I'm still going to stand. That's what he's saying. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. Verse 14. Paul telling us to stand is good. Paul showing us how to stand is even better. And it's the therefore is showing us how to stand. When a soldier goes to training camp, he's not just told what to do. He's shown what to do. 
It's more than just somebody telling you what to do, it's somebody showing you what to do. He's not just told, but he's trained. There was a time, and it seems a lifetime ago, when I served for a period in the Ulster Defence Regiment, which for the benefit of Tessa, our American lovely friend, uh, that would be the equivalent of the home, no, not the home guard, that's Britain, of the, is that in my head now in America, what do you call America? The National Guard, that was it, the National Guard. And so you, you work during the day, then you put a uniform on at night, and they give you a gun, and sent you out there, and, uh, but you were trained. I know they joked and called us Dad's Army and all of that there, and, uh, but you were trained. I remember one time we had to take over a, a key point. This was a place uh, that had to be guarded night and day. And it was the Royal Marines who were guarding it. And we had to go at night time and give them a break. And they counted how many of you came to take over. And if you were one short, they wouldn't let you take over. You always had to have the full contingent. I remember one time saying to a Royal Marine, because to be honest, I felt a bit embarrassed because... I had a job, I was working during the day, and you know, it was like playing soldiers, only it was more serious than that. And that was my mentality, that's what they're thinking. Well, here comes the, the, you know, the <laughs> dad's army again, taking over from us. And I said to one of the Marines one day, I said, you know, I feel a bit embarrassed taking over from these guys. He says, why is this? I says, well, you're, you're professionals, we're just part-timers. I says, but he says, if you get shot, he says, you'll bleed just the same as me. And he says, I'm here six months, and then I'm gone out of here. But he says, you live here, you work here. He says, you're a bigger target than I am. So he says, never, ever feel inferior. Oh, I didn't feel too bad then. It's all right, thank you very much. <laughs> but we were trained. And you had, to go to, you had to go to boot camp, you had to go to Bally Kellner and train there and how to shoot and how to shoot at night. Well, that was fun. Hard enough shooting during the day, but trying to shoot at night, that was difficult. Uh, I shouldn't be saying these things, but... <laughs> or... or <laughs> Or sergeant, whenever we had to shoot at targets at night, I mean, trying to shoot at night was difficult. But you had to get some kind of a reasonable score, you know. So he went up to the, to the targets after you shot, and he had a pencil in his hand, and he stuck the pencil through here and there. Because <laughs> some of the targets didn't have any holes in them. So he made sure there was a few holes put in there. Aye, all right, you got a few there. It didn't have any bullseye, but you got a few on the side. That's okay. That's enough. I think you went in the foot there. That, that'll do. Uh, but you were trained, and you were trained with your weaponry, your gun. You had to know how to clean it and, and you, know, and, you know, just take the thing apart, put it together again, all of that there. You were trained in all of these things. And so Paul is not just telling us to stand. He's showing us how to stand. Uh, and this is like his training manual for spiritual warfare. And he's letting us know uh, how to do this. David said in Psalm, 2 Samuel 22, he says, he teaches my hands to war. So now we come to the battle dress itself. Stand therefore having your loins girded with truth. In John 8, 44, Jesus said that Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Satan loves to lie. He loves to spread lies. He loves people to live lies. 
Satan, his nature is to lie. He just can't help it. He is a liar. He doesn't just tell lies, he's a liar. It's like God is love. It's not that God does love or can love. God is love. That's his nature. It's Satan's nature to lie. Lying is endemic within society. I often say you never ever have to tell a child how to lie. You don't have to teach it. It just knows. It's just that old nature. And we were no different when we were growing up. And I, I know I've said this a thousand times, but it's worth repeating. The little boy in Sunday school, when they asked him, what's a lie? And he says, a lie is an abomination to the Lord, but it's a very present help in time of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it amazing how easily you could find yourself lying? Well, it's only a wee white lie. But if you're in a tight spot and you're up against it, it's amazing how that can just pop out, can't it? That wee so-called white lie. But it's just a lie, no matter what color it is. And so it's endemic. Governments lie. Well, I don't have to tell you that, but I'll tell you anyway. Governments lie. You know, they, they promise, and then they spend things, and they have teams of people. And you watch a politician sometimes, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and you, you just know he's lying. You just know he's lying. And it's only a matter of time before that lie is going to be caught on. But he just lies. Not all of them, of course, but many of them do. Governments lie. Banks, big businesses lie. There are millions of pensioners who paid in for years a pension in their firm. And their firm lied about how they dealt with that pension till it was too late, till it was lost and gone. And then the government had to step in, but it was gone. And people's hard-earned money pension is just gone because a big company or a big business or a big bank lied about their business. Communism is a big lie. Communism is probably one of the biggest lies of the 20th century. Communism promised so much promised that a utopian world where everybody would be the same. There would be no class distinctions and there'd be no economic distinctions. That everybody would have the same and be the same. Uh, and that seemed a, a utopian world to live in. But the reality was it didn't work. And it's proved not to work. Because even China, which is a communist country, totally communist, even China has had to adopt capitalist ideas to get their economy strong. <laughs> and yet they, they, they're communists and they love communism and they extol the virtues of communism. But when it comes to doing business around the world, they've got to do it the capitalist way. It doesn't work. It works only for those at the top. And Karl Marx, I mean, you know, this past week or so has been uh, the anniversary of his death. And Karl Marx, Karl Marx was the, the founder, really, of communism. Uh, das Kapital, which was the book he wrote, and the Communist Manifesto, extolling the virtues of communism and how wonderful it is and so forth. And people took up that idea. And even though he's long since dead, 
And even though when he died, there was reckoned there was only 11 people who came to his funeral, but millions across the world extol him as the greatest thinker that ever lived. And what happened? Joseph Stalin of Russia took up his ideas and slaughtered millions of his people. Millions. Paul Pot of Cambodia took up his ideas and slaughtered millions of his people. About a quarter of the population of Cambodia, two million people out of eight, were slaughtered in the fields of Cambodia. They did away with all the teachers, all the professionals, if you owned anything. They even said even if you wore a pair of glasses, you were seen as academic. So they took you out and shot you. You know what I mean? And this was so there would be no class distinctions. Everybody would be the same. The trouble was everybody wasn't the same because the leaders weren't living the life that the people were living in the party phase. You know, and, and so you, you have this communism all around the world that just is dire, it's awful, it's terrible, and uh, built on lies. Evolution is a lie. Darwin believed it. He didn't think it was a lie. He, he didn't think he was deliberately telling this lie. He totally believed it, but it's a lie nonetheless. And it's deceived millions. Untold millions are deceived by it. The devil is the father of lies. And as Christians, we are not to buy into this. We are to be models of truth and integrity and honesty. In our humanity, sometimes we feel in that. But our propensity is to be honest and ethical and do the right thing. We don't always do it. But our attention is to do it. That's our hearts to do that. And that's the way it should be as believers. Psalm 51 and 6. God desires truth in the inward parts. To be honest with ourselves. If we can't be honest with ourselves, we're not going to be honest with anybody else. So we start with ourselves. We look into our hearts and see, are we honest? Are we doing the honest thing? And then we can then start to live that and be that. God desires truth in the inward parts. People who constantly lie end up living a lie. You know, people who, there's people who just continually lie. They, they live in a fantasy world and they believe their own lies in the end. And it's really sad, isn't it? So we're to gird up our loins with truth. We have to have on the the belt of truth. Now, let me just step from behind the platform here, the pulpit. Have, have a look at, at what I'm dressed in today. I know it's not brilliant like, but my wife does her best to keep me sort of decent. So I've got a jacket on, I've got a shirt, I've got a tie, I've got trousers, I've got a pair of shoes. Not too bad. Okay. So if you look at me, that's what you see. But probably not one in 100 of you would notice my belt. Because it's just a belt. You know, if you, if you saw a man walking into the room and he was well-dressed, you wouldn't say, the first thing you wouldn't say, well, it's a lovely belt he's got on. The reason why I'm saying that is because Truth is vitally important 
even though it may not seem to be. In the grand scheme of things, when you look at this armor that we're to wear, the belt mightn't be the first thing that you think about, but it's the first thing that Paul wrote down. Why? Because he was looking at a Roman infantry man, soldier. He was looking at him, and he looked at the belt, and he could see that the belt held his shield. The belt held his sword. The belt held everything together. Without the belt, there was nowhere to rest his sword or rest his shield or to keep everything together. Now, I wear a belt not just for fashion reasons, but to keep my trousers up. Well, that would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? There's a church in Belfast. This actually happened. There was an American singer came. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say? He took a big breath to sing and no belt on, trousers ended up his ankles. No, he didn't have stars and striped boxers on either. He didn't have that. So there's a reason for the belt. It's not just for fashion. And whenever the Roman soldier wore a belt, there was a reason for it. It was a practical thing. It was an important thing. He had to have his belt. That kept everything together. Truth keeps everything together. If we don't have the belt of truth, then everything will fall apart. Having your loins girded with truth. Then he says, verse 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The historian Polybus, describing the Roman soldier's armor, says, most of them wear a bronze, also a bronze plate of, of a span's width each way, which they place across the breast. So a span's width right across. He didn't say, by the way, they're at the back too, which they are. But right across the chest, and he says they call it a heart protector. That's nice, isn't it? A heart protector. You see, I mean, you could stab somebody with a sword in the leg or the foot or the arm, and they'll survive, but if you stab them in the heart, chances are they're not going to make it. Sure they're not. The heart's the vital organ. And so at all costs, the heart had to be protected. Yes, there was a helmet of salvation. We'll get onto that later at some point. But the heart had to be protected. And the breastplate of righteousness, it symbolizes our righteousness in Christ and our righteous life in Christ. Our righteousness in Christ and our righteous life in Christ. So this is talking about our heart. This is talking about the vital part of us. The very heart that we have it symbolizes our righteousness in Christ. Now, in 2 Corinthians I've written down the wrong scripture. Sorry, I'm looking at Ephesians, that's why. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, yes. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 
For he made him, for he, God the Father, made him his son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For he made him who knew no sin for us, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ went to that cross to make us righteous before a holy God because we were unrighteous. We had no righteousness. We were completely undone. We were sinful creatures before a holy God. And so Christ went to pay the price for our sins, to forgive us our sins and release us from our sins to make us right before God, to have a right standing before a holy God. And without Christ going to the cross and forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from our sins, then we could not stand righteously before God. We would be a condemned sinner before a holy God. But now we can stand as sons and daughters before a holy God. Now there's a place of grace for us to stand before a holy God. Christ made that possible. That's positional righteousness. Our position now before God is, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Before I was just a sinner, I was without hope, I was undone, I was lost, I was bound for hell, but Christ saved me, and now my position is, I am righteous before God. Didn't deserve it, didn't earn it, couldn't get it, couldn't merit it, but he made it for me. He gave me that. But then there's our righteous life in Christ. This is practical righteousness. In Ephesians 4.24, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, that you put on the new man. There's something we've got to do. We have got to live this out. Christ made us righteous and we can safely and legally say I'm the righteousness of God in Christ, that's wonderful, but let us see that lived out. That's what the world wants to see, isn't it? We can talk all we want, but the world wants to see, are we walking the talk? Are we living right? And so the Bible expects that from us. In Romans chapter 4 and 5, it talks about things like imputation, it talks like reconciliation. It talks about justification. These are all accountancy terms, by the way. The Apostle Paul was great at taking everyday things like an athlete or a soldier or an accountant or a judge and making spiritual application with it. In Romans 4 and 5, he does that about accountancy, which I'm not really going to get into this morning. However, uh, he does say in Romans chapter 5, and verse well let me read verse 6 for when we were still without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly for scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were, we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more have, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as 
though one, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus sin spread, death spread to all men because all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. What that simply said is this, that every man from Adam sinned but whenever the law came, we were much more aware of our sin. It was obvious, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And suddenly we could see our sin. Man could see it, even though he had been sinning, but now he can see it and is conscious of it, and it has to be dealt with. So he goes on. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God uh, by, by one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgments which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reign through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace or the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Christ Jesus. Almost finished. Therefore, as though one man's offense judgment, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. What that is simply saying is this. Adam was the federal head of all humanity and he had in the garden a right standing with God. God came into the garden at the cool of the day and they communed every day. But he fell in sin. He disobeyed God's command and he partook of the fruit and sin entered in and suddenly he no longer had that right standing with God. In fact, God had to put him out of the garden. Amen? But every man from then did not have a right standing before a holy God until Jesus Christ came. And when Jesus Christ came and went to the cross, gave his blood, paid the penalty for the sin, we received him, accepted him, now we have that right standing before a holy God. That's the only reason we can stand before a holy God, because of Christ's righteousness. So Christ took our sins put them on himself and paid the price for them as a wonderful thing. That meant our debt had been paid. Here's the currency, but our debt had been paid. But it didn't stop there because then he took his righteousness and put it on our account. Thank you. And that means we are wealthy beyond imagination because of the riches of Christ. He has given his righteousness to us. Now then, we have got to live out that righteousness. It's not enough for us just to say, well, I am spiritually wealthy. Fine, well, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with your wealth? Are you giving it away? Are you reaching out? Are you showing your righteousness of Christ to others? Can they see Christ in you, the hope of glory? This is what Paul is trying to tell us here. In Hebrews 12, 11, it speaks of the peaceable fruits of righteousness. 
In 1 John 2, not John's Gospel, but 1 John, John's Epistle, 1 John 2, verse 29, last verse. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Did you see that? That everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So that's just not something abstract that we have received. This is something that's living that we have received that affects our life and how we live our lives, how we practice this. So it's not just enough to say, I have this, but are we practicing this? That's what John is saying here. And then in chapter 3, the next chapter, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And then in verse 10, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was the wicked one, murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. And in verse 21, Beloved, if her heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence towards God. And so righteousness is so very, very important. The breastplate of righteousness, keeping our hearts right. Keeping our hearts right. Keeping our lives right before God and before the world around us. Now, I say again, we're human. We'll make our mistakes. We'll get it wrong from time to time. But our desire is to practice righteousness. Not just to say we're saved. People say, well, saved, but what does that mean? How does that affect your life? How does that affect your daily life? Well, here's how it affects my daily life. This is how I live my life, in the light of the righteousness that Christ has given me. That's what God wants to see in our lives. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. So wear the breastplate of righteousness. Realize who you are in Christ. That's what your righteousness will do for you. So you know you're standing before God. And then practice that. Live that out. The big thing is to live it out, isn't it? That's what the world wants to see. Close with this. In ancient times, when you had... Artisans, sculptors, uh, they would uh, maybe make a column or make an image with a sculpt it very fine. But sometimes they made mistakes. Sometimes there's cracks appeared. And they spent maybe weeks maybe making this. And so what they would do, they would take wax and they would fill in the cracks with wax. And it was very good. It, it concealed that crack. And then somebody would buy that or it would be used. But after a while, that wax would begin to deteriorate and become discolored, and the sun would melt it. And then it would be exposed as a fraud. It would be exposed as inferior quality. So those who were honest 
sculptors and honest artisans, knowing that whenever they would make a sculpture, then they would write on it, sign Sira without wax. Sign Sira without wax. And that's where we get the word sincere from. Without wax. Nothing hidden. The real deed. Honest. Integrity. Sincere. And so God wants her hearts to be sincere, without wax. Sincere, real, honest. Honest before God, honest before ourselves, honest before the world. We're never going to be 100% because we're human. But as much as we can, let's try to live that. Let's wear the breastplate of righteousness. Let's have the girdle of truth around us. And then let's go forward. Proverbs 28 and 1. The wicked flees when no man pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And whenever you have got the dress and you've got the belt of truth and you've got the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and you've got the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and the shield of faith, then you are equipped and you stand in your righteousness and then you can be bold no matter what the enemy is doing against you and the enemy loves to come against you no matter how hard he's coming against you, you can say, in Christ, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And I have the breastplate of righteousness on. And I have the shield of faith to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. And so forth and so on. This is what this is designed to do, to show us how we can stand against the strategies, the wiles of the evil one. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us armor to protect our vital organs spiritually speaking we thank you that not only that but you have given us weapons to attack not just armor to defend but weapons to attack and so we thank you lord that you have in your grace and love and mercy made us the righteousness of god in christ and we thank you, Lord, that we can stand here today knowing that we are wearing that breastplate of righteousness. And that's what the enemy will see when he comes against us. So let us remind ourselves, Lord, that we have this as part of our armor that we wear every day. So we give you thanks for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.